Hi everyone, I'm Jason Scorse, and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing great. In the last episode, I discussed enacting anti-racist policies, and I want to continue in that vein today, but take an even broader lens. So today's episode is entitled, Justice Should Be the Overarching Goal for Everything quite a grand claim, I know, and my thoughts on this topic aren't fully flushed out, but I think they're worth discussing, and maybe even some of you can add to them. So this line of thinking came to me over the past few years, as I've realized that as I've gotten older, I've found that decision-making in general is becoming much easier and less stressful, I make decisions quite quickly and decisively in both my personal and professional life. And the reason is, is because over time, my overarching consideration for everything I do is, is it just? Is it the right thing to do? Or put another way, what is the best thing to do? The most just, the most morally commendable. Now, this may seem simple, but I think there's some depth to it that I want to explore over the course of this episode. I believe that morality is like a muscle like any other. The more you use it, the more you develop muscle memory that makes things instinctive and automatic. And so if your primary lens through which you view the world at every juncture is what is the right thing to do, what is the just thing to do, your brain gets wired to thinking in justice terms. And I think when it comes to most decisions, there are really pretty clear right and wrong answers, right and wrong pathways. And therefore, if the justice lens becomes the dominant lens, it becomes easy to make decisions because one pathway, one way, typically kind of supersedes the rest with respect to justice and morality. And so I mean this pretty thoroughly when I say everything, right? It doesn't mean, you know, what type of, you know, what flavor ice cream am I going to have for dessert? But when it comes to, you know, career path decisions, how should I treat the people I work with? How should I treat my partner in a given situation? What charities should I give to? How much should I give? Who should I vote for? What type of consumer goods should I buy? What should my diet entail? I think there are actually pretty clear answers that some are more just than others, and that if you take the justice lens, decision-making becomes a lot easier. And the more you use this type of lens, the quicker the right answers just come to you instinctively. Again, kind of as muscle memory. Now look, I don't want to oversimplify things here, right? Justice is definitely not always precise, and there are gray areas. There will never be a firm, exact, right answer for many of life's circumstances. So I get that. I acknowledge that. 
But I do think a justice lens will get people close to the right answer. And perhaps even more importantly, it will help us avoid obviously wrong answers. And I think that's particularly important because, again, as I get older, the more I think about morality, I think avoiding worst case scenarios and true injustice is probably the best we humans can do and is certainly the first thing we should do, right? Happiness and human flourishing, great things, I aspire to them, but those are tough, right? Happiness is somewhat illusory and transitory and difficult to pin down. But absolutely, all of us definitely benefit from avoiding excessive pain and cruelty and immorality. And and as I'll see as we get on in this episode, this goes for non-humans as well. What's even more encouraging, I think, is that with a justice and morality lens in your decision-making, you often get win-win situations. Because the reality is much of life is in fact not a zero-sum game. The forces of evil want us to believe in zero-sum thinking because it is how they divide us and weaken us and steal everything and run to the bank. But in reality, what's right and just do often immediately give us benefits that are deep and profound, not the least of which is that being a moral person is just a more enjoyable and satisfying way to live. You know, just to go off on the right wing here for a second... You know, I think about these comic book villains on the right, you know, up and down the line in media, in Congress, you know, in think tanks. And I mean, you know, again, I, I, my first, my emphasis, my priority is stopping them, stopping them from doing evil. But at a a secondary human level, I actually feel sorry for them on some level. And again, if they weren't actively harming people, I would feel sorry for them more but because to live like that, to live where you're just out to get everybody and you're racist and you're divided and you're lying, I mean, it's just a disgusting way to live. And I'm pretty sure that most of these people are miserable. I mean, I'm like 99.9% sure that most hardcore right-wingers are miserable. They're living miserable, horrible lives. And they would be better if they, you know, jettisoned the right-wing insanity and came on board with truth and honesty and compassion. Now, with all of this being said, I want to be clear here that I am no saint. I have never been, I never will be, and I have a lot farther to go in my moral evolution. In fact, you know, I have a morality and justice lens because I want to be good, and sometimes, you know, some of my instincts are not good. They can be greedy and selfish. And so I'm actually actively trying to build that muscle memory so I, you know, I can go in a more progressive, moral, just direction. And by making justice the lens that guides my life has really, you know, provided immense benefits to me. And I want to, after the break, just kind of share some practical examples of this from kind of a societal lens and a, uh, a personal individual lens. So more after the break.
Okay, so I want to pro provide some examples now of how this justice lens in a public policy context will promote superior courses of action. So let's start with drug use. All right? What should a just policy look like for dealing with drug use in society? And I first want to note that there is no culture in the history of civilization in which people haven't used intoxicating substances to alter their consciousness. It's an elemental desire akin to sex and food. This is fact. Now, of course, that doesn't mean everybody wants to do drugs, but the same is true with respect to sex and food, that a lot of people don't have strong sex drives, a lot of people really don't like food that much and just eat it to live. So the point is it's a spectrum, but again, in terms of group dynamics, there are no large groups of humans where some of them aren't engaging in, in, in drug behavior. Now, of course, at the same time, acknowledging this doesn't mean that there aren't very dangerous drugs out there that can not only harm individuals, but also lead to pathological behavior that can make people harm others, and in sometimes in very severe ways. So again, what does a justice lens look like um, if we're thinking about drug policy? Well, I think first it's clear that individual drug use that doesn't harm others should be completely legal and permitted because this is a bedrock of liberty, right? I'm, you know, getting high in my home on some drug. I'm sitting listening to music. I'm having a good time. At the end of the night, you know, I drink a glass of water and some vitamins and go to bed. You know, whatever that substance is that I'm enjoying myself or with friends, that should be fully permitted in society um, because that's, again, the cornerstone of liberty is being able to do, you know, what you want with your own body and mind. Now, this right away shows us that most drug laws in most countries are unjust at the core because most countries make and criminalize and make illegal most drugs, right? So that's the core there. Now, what about the fact that there are some drugs that lead to violent behavior, like PCP, angel dust? I think a clear uh, justice angle says these should be prohibited because of the high risk that one's personal consumption could lead to severe harm to innocence, right? This is key. So again, bedrock principle that if you're doing something only for yourself that doesn't harm others, you have full license to do it. However, if there is a significant chance that this drug is going to make you harm others, it should be prohibited because protecting innocent life is paramount in a just society. Now, the key thing to point out is this covers a very, very tiny proportion of drugs. So with this justice lens, most drugs would remain legal. What about the issue that of people who abuse drugs, even drugs that in relatively small doses are, you know, are social and not harmful, like alcohol or, you know, mushrooms um, or marijuana, you know, and also, you know, people when they abuse them can harm others through, you know, violent behavior or maybe, you know, drinking and driving, things like this, right? So you can have substances that at certain limited doses and in certain contexts aren't damaging, to others and innocence, but in some they are. How do we kind of separate that, that out? Well, I think justice demands two things here. It's severe punishment for those 
who use these drugs in irresponsible ways where the likelihood of harming others is high, right? So, of course, driving under the influence of any drugs, that should be sanctioned very highly, right? That you have a high propensity to kill innocent people and harm yourself if you're drinking and driving or doing, you know, psychedelics and driving, etc., right? So, again, doing it in the comfort of your own home, fine. Doing it while you're driving or at work or when you're, you know, using equipment that's dangerous, you should be severely punished for that. Now, the, the other kind of, kind of other side of the coin here is that if the reason you're doing this is because of a healthcare issue, right? You're addicted. You have a compulsive behavior that you can't control. And in some ways, it's really not your fault. The society should help you through health care and mental health services and substance abuse services so that you can break this addiction, right? So it can't all be punitive if it's a really a health issue that's driving you to this antisocial behavior. So again, what I've just outlined there, I think any reasonable person using justice could come up with in five minutes, right? All these points are very easy to derive if you take a justice lens, right? If you're simply exercising your individual liberty and not harming others, you're free to do what you want. If you're harming others, you should be punished. However, if you're harming others through a compulsive, you know, disease, through addiction, society should use resources to help you cure your mental and physical health problems, right? So this would be the foundation of a sane and just drug policy. And again, what's so shocking is that this doesn't comport and mirror the drug policy of most nations. In fact, most nations, it's the exact opposite, right? It's incredible um, criminalization of all drug use. Uh, it's also, uh, you know, very little in the way of healthcare to help people uh, break their addictions, right? The U.S. is obviously probably the most egregious case with the utter immorality and folly of our many decades drug wars, which have wasted trillions of dollars, ruined millions of lives, and allowed the state to make a mockery of individual liberty. And then let alone the fact that a lot of the drug war policy has been implemented in an incredibly racist fashion, so it exacerbates racist inequality, and of course also that it provides incentives for violent drug cartels to corner the markets and you know profit from this. So you could probably not craft a more unjust policy in the last 50 years in America than the war on drugs. And sadly, many other countries mirror us, even if not to the full extent. So let's move on to an issue that's a slightly more abstract, um, and education. So if you're thinking about how should a society approach education from a justice lens, what, is it, what does it have to add? Well, I'd say clearly since education is the foundation for productive civic engagement, for societal advancement as people get more educated and more entrepreneurial and more productive, and also for personal individual growth because it provides opportunities for people to you know, advance their own lives and, and of their family, families, education is really the cornerstone policy of any just society. And that this must begin early in a child's life because science tells us that once children enter kindergarten at age five, they have already gone through some very serious periods of development 
which if those have not been cultivated, really sets those students back, right? So this is why we also should have universal pre preschool, which is something that uh, unfortunately the Biden administration is pushing for. Now, uh, what else does justice demand? Well, justice demands that resources for schools shouldn't be based on the local property values so that rich neighborhoods get high-funded schools and poor neighborhoods get low-funded schools, that the resources should be relatively equalized over society so that everyone gets a quality education. Now, of course, this equalization doesn't have to be down to the penny, right? Rich people are always going to give their kids some extra benefits, whether it's private tutors or, you know, summer camps or whatever. So again, I'm not saying it has to be pure equalization, but the basics, the basics of a quality education, quality, again, from a young age, should absolutely be equalized across society. Now, it gets a little bit more tricky when you say, well, should the government provide free college too? What does justice say about that? And I don't think justice would really have, this is where things do enter gray areas, right? But I think justice certainly says that since college is a prerequisite for many professional careers, that students shouldn't be burdened with incredibly heavy debt loads that plague them their whole lives. It shouldn't be affordable. So maybe education shouldn't be free. You know, maybe people should be, you know, have to contribute. That's fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think free is good, but also, it, you know, if it's not entirely free, I don't think that's unjust. But affordability should be the key, right? Nobody should, you know, go broke or be burdened with decades of debt to advance themselves with a college education, right? This is common sense that justice demands. Now, where we get into the non-zero-sum game aspect here is, is that a more educated populace is a healthier populace. It's a more dynamic populace, and this benefits everyone. So again, it's a good example of how investments in education are not handouts. They're not welfare, but they're investments in social capital that's required for social cohesion cohesion, advancement, and trust. So after the the next break here, I want to extend this thinking to the environmental realm and our treatment of non-human species. So more after the break. Okay, so this next discussion will be on the environmental realm, applying justice in this realm. I've worked in environmental policy for over 20 years, and the main lens through which policy is gauged in the environmental movement is often sustainability, right? Whether an action degrades the productive capacity of the earth, right? So we talk about sustainable agriculture, right? That doesn't 
you know, um, take more resources from the soil and degrade, you know, the productive capacity, right? Whether it um, doesn't use up too much water, especially groundwater resources that are non-renewable, right? From an energy standpoint, we're often looking at, you know, is it com com contributing to climate change? And if it is, that's unsustainable. But if it's a, you know, a decarbonized, zero carbon alternative, that's sustainable. So sustainability, even if not perfectly defined, is kind of the main lens through which most environmentalists and environmental policy is, is gauged. Now, of course, that's changing, especially in the last couple of years as environmental justice um, you know, gains traction. And the environmental justice movement is focused specifically on kind of disproportionate harms to black and brown people and indigenous people and the kind of, the, you know, the environmental racism that has been perpetrated on non-white people across the globe. But I'm going to take a little, a little broader view when I talk about what justice means to the environmental realm, although it, it includes kind of environmental racism. It's kind of subsumed under it. So I, I, going back to the sustainability lens, I think sustainability can be useful. I think it's important. But I also think that it's inferior to the justice lens. And in fact, justice not only incorporates sustainability, but really goes to, to the next level. So let's, let's just look at air and water pollution first. Right? So a sustainability lens, you know, trying to examine air and water pollution kind of already starts in a weird place. Right? Sustainability is supposed to include social dimensions. But how do we really examine exposure to air and water pollution through a sustainability lens, right? It's not intuitive and it's not obvious. But justice is, is a lot clearer. And I think justice tells us a lot more, right? It says that no groups should be subjected to high levels of toxic exposure that can cause negative health impacts and chronic adverse health conditions. Right? In the industrialized era where we live in, it is pretty much unreasonable to say that no one should ever be exposed to any pollution. Right? Just think about it. That's impossible. Right? That means no cars, no burning of anything, no wood fires, you know, literally zero plastics, zero of the modern economy uh, would be allowable. Now, some people might like that, might want us to go back to the hunter-gatherer era. But, you know, for those of us living in the modern era who who accept some of the, you know, the benefits of the kind of industrial era we live in, exposure to any pollution can't be the criteria, right? But exposure to levels that lead to adverse health impacts should be banned, period, right? No human being should be subjected to levels of pollution that actively harm them, right? Create health conditions that really negatively impact their life, particularly cancer and asthma and emphysema and heart disease, etc. So what would this mean, right? If we took that justice lens to air and water pollution, this would mean no more burning coal and no lead pipes anywhere, right? A just society would have removed all lead pipes from its infrastructure as soon as the science of lead was in, which was decades ago, right? What else would justice say? It would say areas like in the U.S. Cancer Alley in Louisiana, where you know certain communities are exposed to tremendous amounts 
of toxic chemicals. This would simply not be allowed under a justice framework. No community should be able to should be forced to you know bear a disproportionate burden. And this again has the you know the environmental justice point with with respect to racism built in because no black and brown community, no indigenous community, but no community period, right? That's why I think a broader justice lens is important, right? Not even a, a community of rich white people should be subjected to this, right? It just shouldn't exist, period. Now, what's interesting about this is that if everyone all throughout the world was forced to confront some levels of toxic exposure, this would compel rich people to demand cleaner industrial processes and technologies and more stringent reg regulations, right? It's only the out-of-sight, out-of-mind reality that allows wealthy communities to tolerate the environmental injustices and racism of today, right? So just think about it. If, if we had a policy that said chemical plants, coal plants, whatever, you know, again, and some of these might be banned completely, but whatever was left had to be evenly distributed among the population. So all communities were subject to them, right? At an equal footing, this would, of course, mean that people would demand much cleaner industrial processes. So this would help usher in a much cleaner green revolution, right? It's the fact that rich people don't feel that they're subjected to these things that allows them to turn a blind eye that other people are. Now, let's take, a, take this all a step further and examine our treatment of non-human animals, right? What does justice say? Justice says that humans have no right to torture and abuse beings that have the ability to feel intense pain and pleasure. So this means all factory farming should be prohibited. And people who engage in the practices, the barbarism that is engaged in, in factory farming should be jailed. Right? So again, in a just society, it would be illegal to have a factory farm. And anyone who was caught torturing and maiming animals like they do by the billions in these industrial systems would be punished severely. Now, where do we go with this, right? Is it okay to kill a mussel or an oyster, right? Probably, because to, to our knowledge, they don't have advanced nervous systems and they don't feel pain, right? Is it okay to hunt a deer? You know, obviously a deer is a highly sentient being, but maybe that's okay too if they're killed quickly, right? After all, many of them will will be killed by, you know, predators um, and or, you know, die relatively um, difficult deaths in the wild. So, you know, this might be up for debate. My point is, is that even though I think a plant-based vegan diet is probably the most just and moral diet there is, it doesn't mean that justice absolutely requires that, right? There is a little gray area. But for 99% of the industrial animal agriculture system, justice says it doesn't make the cut and it must be banned. And I'm gonna say this unequivocally, right? The things we do, the chickens, pigs, lamb, cattle, is absolutely a moral abomination. And we should be ashamed and embarrassed. It is a disgrace that with our power, we can eat anything. You know, we can use technology to make things that taste almost identical to meat and that we're inflicting this level of abuse on billions of our fellow creatures 
is just a fucking crime almost beyond comprehension. Now, where does this come into a kind of a win-win, right? Well, meat and dairy are also responsible for horrible human health outcomes. They're also responsible for incredible environmental destruction. So if a just society banned these practices, that would greatly benefit humanity. We'd all be healthier, we'd live longer lives, and there would be much more wilderness to enjoy since meat and dairy uh, leads to so much deforestation and destruction of wilderness. Before I end this segment, I want to mention a conversation I had with a former student that kind of is illustrative on this topic. So I was discussing an issue with him that has been prominent in Central California these past few years, which is that humpback whales are being entangled and killed in crab fishery lines. Now again, humpback whales, incredibly sentient beings, and when they're trapped in these lines and killed, it is a slow, agonizing, painful death. It is horrible. I made the point to him that no whale should ever die so that people can have crab cakes, that the issue is black and white. The acceptable level of humpback whale deaths for crab fisheries is zero. Now, he knows that I'm an economist by training, and so he responded to me and said, well, you know that that view is economically irrational, don't you? And what he was trying to get at is that if you add up all of the money generated from the crab fishery, it may be that that is greater than the monetary value we attach to a few humpback whales, especially given that they are no longer threatened with extinction. In some sense, he was kind of backdooring the sustainability criteria, right? Because it's not threatening humpback whales with extinction if we kill a few. And, you know, if we, you know, if we don't value humpback whales that much and the crab fishery is worth, you know, tens of millions of dollars, the economically rational thing to do would be to allow a few whales to be killed to allow the, 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 the fishery to persist. Let me just make a side note here that they're doing a lot of work with, you know, closures of the crab fishery during certain times to, you know, minimize humpback whale entanglement. They're looking at new technologies. So I want to be clear that a lot of people are stepping up. They've made a lot of progress. And I'm not trying to just, you know, um, zero in and, and demonize crab fisheries, right? I'm just using this to illustrate kind of a more, a more larger kind of moral economic point. Now, coming back to my, my former student's logic, let's put aside the fact that it's somewhat circular logic and that he's saying that, you know, if the value of the fab crab fisheries is more than the value that humans put on whales, you know, we should, we should let the crab fishery persist. But again, remember, we're the ones putting the value on the whales, so that's a little circular. However, if you buy the logic of kind of cost-benefit analysis... Um, this does have a logic to it, right? So my response to him was, though, is that this framework ultimately at a moral level is bullshit, right? It is a product of modern capitalism that is no more than 200 years old and has become kind of a religion, a set of moral precepts that I think are deeply flawed and deeply inferior to a justice lens. And, you know, this is especially true in America where we really have elevated capitalism and greed to the state religion. I studied economics and I, I got a degree in economics because I knew that this is where the power lies. And if you, you can use economics um, artfully, you can actually get a lot of progressive things done. 
So as an economist, I absolutely value economics when it's used in capable hands for progressive ends. But it is a double-edged sword because economics can be used to justify killing a few whales. After all, they may not be worth as much as those crabs. And so I want to clearly plant my flag with the justice lens and say that it is superior to the economic utilitarian lens. We need to evolve as a species. And if 100 years from now, we're still using economics to justify our actions, we will have failed and we will most likely be heading to extinction ourselves. So this economics utilitarian framework, I think has had some usefulness, but at this point with 8 billion humans and climate change and incredible abuse of other sentient beings in the natural world, I think it's kind of outlived its usefulness and it's time that we evolve, right? Again, a moral framework based on universal principles of justice is the next step in our evolution. Um, Economics has a place still, but I don't think it really should have a strong seat at the table in matters of life and death. So after the break, I'll come back with the antidote. Okay, so today's antidote is going to be short. If you don't already, I ask that you try the justice lens in your own life. Right? So when you come to every important decision, you come to that crossroads, ask yourself, what is the most just thing to do? What is the morally right thing to do? And see if it's helpful to you. See if that leads you in a direction that you're happy with. And if anyone has any thoughts to add on this, please email me using the form on the Zombie Dispatch website because I know that these are you know, not fully formed thoughts and there's a lot more here and I'd love to know what you all think. And, and I want to again reemphasize that I think it really is about muscle memory. It's just training yourself to think in a certain way so that justice and morality becomes instinctive. So all of us who are imperfect uh, you know, fallen beings here who want to try to lead a more moral life, um, I really highly recommend it. It's, it's, it's helped me in immeasurable ways. So with that, everybody, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. And if you are, please share it with family, friends, and colleagues. Uh, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. And please rate it as well if you're enjoying it. And with that, everybody, have a great rest of the week. Take care.